Please stand with me um, as we read the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you are delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow, and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take this talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. So to everyone who has will, more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may be seated. Well, today we start uh, the fourth of a five-part series on our core values, and if you're new to OGC, this is going to feel a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, we just walk through books of the Bible, and the, the goal is to make the main point of the passage, the main point of the sermon, and apply it in our context but we're taking these five uh, weeks to go a little more topical, um, which probably worth noting, that is the main way the apostles uh, tended to teach scripture. So we're okay taking five weeks to do it. And I wanna do it today by going to the parable of the talents and looking at our fourth core value of stewarding our resources. So I'm thinking if I'm in the audience and I hear the pastor say, we're going to talk today about stewarding our resources, I'm going to brace myself. (laughs) I'm going to get ready to hear the pastor talk about some financial campaign, some debt reduction campaigns, building some new building, maybe ready for a thermometer to roll out of those doors onto the stage. And I think there's a place in the church for all of those things. But if when we hear stewarding our resources, We only hear finances. We only hear raise money. Then we've missed the whole boat. 
we've missed really the core of what Jesus is wanting us to hear. So when we hear stewarding our resources, yes, it at least is being good with our finances, but it does encompass so much more. So I want to look at this parable and I want to answer two basic questions. Why is it that we should steward our resources and how do we do it? The why and the how. So why? Why why we steward our resources? In short, we steward our resources because we love our master and we're eager for his return. We love our master and we're eager for his return. And this parable, it comes, if you, if you know Matthew 25, it's the second of three consecutive parables that deal with judgment. And so in this parable, Jesus is using the imagery of a master and his servants. So this master comes in and he gives each of his servants a different number of talents. He gives one five talents, one two talents, and then the third one he gives one talent. And a talent is really a measurement of weight. And we don't know exactly what they're weighing, if it's gold, silver, or some other precious metal. But while all scholars will disagree on how much exactly this is, all scholars agree that it's a lot of money. It's anywhere from maybe just a few months of a normal wage all the way out to years of a normal person's wage. So this master gives these talents, he leaves for some period of time, and then he returns. And when he returns, he wants an accounting for what has been done with what he has given them. And so you have your first, your first servant who comes up very eagerly, showing him, master, you gave me five and now I have 10. And the second servant who comes up seems kind of delighted to show him, you gave me two, I did the same thing, I doubled it, there's now four. And then you have this third servant who, you know, the way I read it, I hear in somewhat of an irritated way, shows the master, you gave me one talent and here it is back. So the two who had invested the talents, they, they hear their master praise them in, in what should be a very familiar phrase. <laughs> well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the presence of the Lord. So when, he, when Jesus is using the, that kind of language, he's clearly connecting the, judge, the judgment, in, in this case praise, of the two servants to the judgment that all of us will face after this life. And then with the third one, he has something different and harsh, but also familiar if we know our New Testament. His judgment, he says, you wicked and lazy servant. And then he takes away the one talent they had given them and he casts him into a dark place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is again using very familiar language to liken the judgment of the third servant to hell. So this is a heavy passage. We're not gonna candy coat over that. It's a heavy passage. And because it's heavy, we should listen all the more clearly to what Jesus is trying to communicate in this parable. So what's the difference? What is the difference between the two and the third servant? The first and second and the third servant. Because if, if this is true, if there, are different, if there are different judgments, then we want to know how to get the judgment of the first two. And so clearly at a surface level, there is, there is judgment for how they have stewarded what they've been given. There is a clear connection here between faithfulness and salvation. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna candy coat that either at all. But I think the more important question is to ask, why were these two fruitful? 
Why were they fruitful? What is it that made them fruitful? Clearly they were more fruitful, but why? I think that gets more to the heart of what Jesus is teaching. And I think they were more fruitful because they had affection and love for their master and they seemed to be eager for his return. They liked him, so they, they, they cared about him. They cared that they were stewarding something for somebody they cared about. And so I think it makes sense that they worked harder, that they were better stewards of what they were given. And then Jesus, he, when he addresses the third, he doesn't just say, you're lazy. What does he say? You're wicked and lazy. There's something about the heart of the third servant that makes him different. The first two were eager. They had affection for the master. The third one did not seem to. Now I was thinking about it this week. I was in my office and I looked to my right and, and on my right are a bunch of my kids' drawings. I love that we're still in the stage where my kids give me drawings. It pains me to think that that stage is gonna end one day. But I was thinking about these drawings and I, and I pulled a couple out and it's not uncommon for my kids to, to bring me these kinds of drawings. And so you probably can't see it. This is one of my daughter and me. I thought it was pretty good. And then there's another one that's clearly me preaching at the pulpit and yelling, seems loudly, God. <laughs> but all of the drawings that I get, they're not always that discernible. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get a drawing and I was like, that's really great. Why don't you tell me about it? <laughs> and they tell me it's a dinosaur, to which I respond, clearly clearly a dinosaur. I totally see that. And they, they have different levels of artistic ability. They're different ages, so that makes sense. But all of them, they're bringing me their very best because they love me. And I think that's, that's the way I look at this, the first and second servant. That's how I, I feel their, their interaction with their master. But then you have this third servant who says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. I mean, can you hear the disdain in his voice? He comes and he's, he's speaking harshly and in an accusing way. And he said, here, here's what's yours. So imagine if a child came up to me and to stay faithful to the text, imagine that they presented me a drawing that was obviously less than their artistic ability and they say, here, here's what's yours. I mean, we would have a major problem. <laughs> There's a heart issue. I mean, I care, I guess, that it's not as good but, as they could do, but the real issue is their, their motivation, their heart, their love seems to be waning. That's what I sense to be the problem with the third servant. There's no love for the master. His labor shows that fact and he is cast out to this terrible place. And I know we can read this parable and think, man, that sounds really harsh. I mean, he didn't love him, but cast to this place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That just sounds like a lot of justice and I would like more grace. But what we can miss is that Jesus is bringing both justice and grace. He's coming lovingly saying, this is the situation. You're the third servant. I want you to be the first or the second. And I am so devoted to showing you this and changing this fact that if you look a couple chapters later, what happens? Jesus gives his life so that we could experience the grace that he wants us to experience. But in so doing, no justice is missed either. 
And I think that's really important to acknowledge in our culture. We, we desire, at our deepest levels, we desire perfect justice and perfect grace. But we will not experience the fullness of both of those things anywhere outside of Jesus Christ. And we got a really good picture of this, I think, this week for everyone who's been following the Botham Jean case. Botham Jean, of course, the officer Amber Geiger, who was convicted this week of murdering him. She received 10 years with the possibility of parole in five. And there were two videos that went out this week. One, I think most of us saw, Botham Jean's brother on the stand offering grace to this officer and even communicating that he doesn't even want her to go to jail. He doesn't want her to have to experience that. It was grace on display. And many of these people, I know, many of y'all I know who you saw it, many of us were moved to tears by watching this grace offered in such dramatic loss and grief. But the other video that not everybody saw were the tears of his mother calling for justice. How is it that this man who killed her son, this woman who killed her son, could potentially only have five years in prison? And so all of us who followed this case, wherever we are, we left dissatisfied because justice and grace weren't perfect. We wanted more of both. Maybe some of us wanted more justice. Maybe some of us wanted more grace, but it's not perfect and it's not going to be in this life and it should leave us wanting Jesus because only in Jesus do we get both because Jesus came to this earth and he paid all the justice, all the price for our sin. Everything that we merited, he took on in the form of God's wrath on that cross and everything that he merited, we get freely. So you have full and perfect and complete justice and full and complete and perfect grace. We long for these things. We need to fight for these things in the world, but know that it will always fall short until Jesus comes back and makes everything right. But there's something else that I think we have to be very clear on when we look at this parable. We have to know who the original audience is. We are not the original audience. Who are the original audience? Who's he speaking to? Jews. He's speaking to Jews. So this, this changes the way that we understand what Jesus is talking about because he's speaking to the people who had been given a lot to steward. They had been given the law. They had been given the promises. They had been given the very presence of God in the form of the ark, in the form of the temple. And here is the master coming back. Jesus wanting and accounting for what they have done. And they not only had not improved on what had been given to them, how do they treat the master? They kill him. And so in a very real way, Jesus takes away what had been entrusted to them and gives it to the Gentiles. And he casts the rest out. And what I want to be really clear on, this is not an ethnic thing that's going on because it's actually going to all the nations and there are Jews included in what's going on. And it's helpful to understand this in light of Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul describes it this way. He says that Jesus came and there were a group of people, a group of Jews who saw them, who saw Jesus as the master come home, who could give a good accounting, who trusted him as their Lord and Savior. And that group was taken out of Israel. And Paul calls that group the remnant. 
and onto the remnant, the Gentiles were grafted in. So Paul is using agricultural terms here to show the remnant, the core of the faithful Jews who eagerly anticipated the return of the master and we who were grafted in. And we together are now called the church. So we have to see that as the primary the primary meaning of the passage, but absolutely there is a secondary meaning here because we now as the church, we're awaiting a second coming, a second coming of the master and we will have to give an accounting on that that day. Do we eagerly anticipate his return? Do our lives show that? Because if, if we are, then that coming will be the greatest day in the course of human history. But for everyone who doesn't long for his turn, his return, who hasn't stewarded what we've been given. The Bible says that on that day, they will want the mountains to fall on them. This is a heavy passage. And I think it's particularly heavy when you consider the culture that we live in. Because we look out at our culture and living in such a de-churched context, you see people who are mostly the third servant, people who have been entrusted the Bible. They have access to the Bible. They have access to the gospel. They have access to the church. They believe that there, that there probably is a God, most people that we, that we talk to, but they're indifferent to him. They're indifferent to whether or not he comes back, when he comes back, and even indifferent to what happens on the other side of his life for the most part. Most of our culture would have what R.C. Sproul used to call a theology of justification by death. You know, how, how are you justified in the eyes of a holy and righteous God? Well, dying. <laughs> Somehow we die and it all works out. But this parable flies in the face of all of that theology in the culture, all of that third serpent worldview. The Christian worldview says that there has to be heart change. Our problem is at the heart level and that heart change comes from following Jesus, receiving his Holy Spirit and from his Holy Spirit, we are changed. We are called and motivated and now desire to labor for our master until he comes home. And if we don't have the fruit of that labor present in our lives, then Jesus and many other people in the Bible are calling us to examine our faith. Probably one of the most well-known people to do this is James, where he writes in James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And James's answer is no, because if there are no works, it's probably not genuine faith. Genuine faith produces genuine love that produces genuine fruit. That is the biblical model of stewardship. And those who love their master and are eager for his return, those are the ones who will steward their resources well. D.A. Carson says we aren't called to just hang in there. We are servants who owe it to their master to improve what he entrusts them. So that's why we steward our resources. Now, very practically, how? I want to divide this how into three categories. Personal stewardship, because it's, we're, we're doing the series on our core values, organizational stewardship, and then pastoral stewardship. So let's start with personal stewardship. And I think, if I'm honest, of these three categories, this category of personal stewardship, this is most in line of the three with the thrust of Matthew 25. 
So we are all given talents. And I, this is one of the times language benefits our, our English language benefits the way we read the Bible because our modern word talent, it comes from this parable. And so because of the way we use talent in our modern lexicon, we can appreciate that it's not limited simply to our financial resources. Certainly our financial stewardship is a big deal. Jesus talks a whole lot about money. But in stewarding our talents, he is opening it up to encompass everything that we have, all that we offer, all the ways that we are gifted. J.C. Ryle wrote, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all our talents. And we are expected to steward our talents well. My dad worked with SunTrust my whole life. So SunBank and then SunTrust. And in the final season of his, of his employment with SunTrust, he was in private client, private client wealth. So probably my college days on. And people would literally entrust him with millions and millions of dollars. And the expectation was that my dad and his team would grow that money. And so what would people think if they came back years later, even months later, and my dad had decided to take their money and put it in a vault? I mean, maybe if it's 2008, they'd say, you're brilliant. But outside of that, they would be furious. You know, they would, they would say, I've asked you to do this one thing and you did nothing with it. My dad's character would come into call. My dad's reputation would be challenged. And people might start to think, do you not even care about me? Are you trying to do me harm? And that's just money. What Jesus is asking us to steward is so much more. But it's easy to understand, I think, why, why wealthy people would want my dad to steward their money well, because they want more money. But often I think we cannot understand why is it that Jesus cares so much about us stewarding the resources, the talents that he's given us. Why does he care that we improve on them? And the answer is because we are the way he has decided to grow his kingdom. You may remember Jesus said, in some way, you're gonna do works that are mightier than mine, that are greater than mine. And this is where we see this actually playing out. Jesus, when he was here on this earth, in some sense, he was finite. He, He was one person constricted to one body, and he understood all the, all the challenges that we face on a daily basis from being one person in one place in a 24-hour day. He understands that. But as we looked at two weeks ago, upon his ascension, what did he do? He gave gifts to men. He entrusted us all with gifts. And then he gave us the grace to be able to use these gifts, to be able to glorify him. He made these gifts powerful in some way. And so now, instead of one finite Jesus on this world, we have millions of his followers stewarding all these gifts in different ways, in different places, in different times. I am willing to venture a guess that there is not one second in the life of just the city, much less anything larger, where these talents are not being used, where these gifts are not being used. 
And so what we see is all of these gifts being used in all these different places and all these different ways by all these different people at all these different times. They add up and the kingdom is expanding. So Jesus cares that we're exercising our talents, that we're multiplying and building on our talents because his glory is at stake and his kingdom is at hand. So what is it? that you have been given? What are your talents to steward? They're all gonna be different. And if you're here and you're thinking, I just don't know. I'm not entirely sure what my talents are. Or maybe you know what your talent is and and you, you feel fear when you think about stepping into some of those callings, those giftings, those talents. If you're either one of those people, I want to tell you that one of the main ways that God has designed people to understand and to step into the talents that he's given us is community, this church community. We, he wants us to be plugged into a community where our, our talents are seen and valued and encouraged. And this has been true over the whole course of human history, but how much more true is it now in our unbelievably isolated and lonely society? So this is something we as a church, take very seriously. We want you to have access to Bible studies and equipping hours and community groups and service and mission trips where you're going to be substantively connected to other believers who are gonna be able to know you well enough to see your talents, to honor your talents, and to encourage you in those talents. If we approach the church as simply a consumer of goods, we will never be fruitful in all the talents that God has given us and wants us to steward. But if we approach the church as the vehicle that sees, values, and fuels the talents, then not only will we likely multiply what we have more than we could ever imagine, but even more than that, we will one day stand in front of our master and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant enter into the presence of your Lord. So that's personal stewardship. Secondly, we have organizational stewardship. So while I think that I could, I could use Matthew 25 to talk about this, just to be really faithful to a text, I wanna shift from Matthew 25 to Ephesians 5. And I'm going to read what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, 15 and 17 to who? This whole church, this organization In Ephesus, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wives, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So in a church, we have the organism and the organization. (laughs) You know, we have the organism, which is all of the unplanned organic things that happen in the life of the church. And then you have the organization, which is organizational trellising that exists to equip and send the organism. And in a church, you have to really appreciate both if you want the church to thrive. And so our, our challenge organizationally as it pertains to Ephesians 5, is to know what the will of the Lord is. Know what the will of the Lord is. 
So all of us in this church, at some level, we have, if you're a member of this church, we have the responsibility to be actively engaged in helping to figure out what is the will of the Lord at Orlando Grace Church in 2019. And certainly the elders of this church bear a unique responsibility, a unique burden in deciphering the will of the Lord for this local church. And some of these decisions, they're easy. You know, like what book do we teach? The Bible. You know, what gospel do we preach? Jesus. (laughs) But it gets a lot more complex when we start considering how do we facilitate real relationships in this increasingly isolated society? How can we care for every single member in a growing church? How is it that we influence this increasingly secular city? These are complex These are really hard issues sometimes to discern what is the will of the Lord. We want to be careful. We want to walk not as unwise, but as wise. We want to make the best use of our time. And that requires Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom. And I I don't want to just fill up a, a sermon like this with organizational stuff. There's going to be some because it's our core values. But what I really want to communicate is that organizational wisdom is a thing that we have to steward if we're going to be faithful I mean, the the disciples had to figure it out. They needed organizational wisdom to discern what the will of the Lord is when thousands of people came to faith in one day. The early church had to figure out Holy Spirit-inspired organizational wisdom when governmental persecution came on them in a new way. And we're gonna have to figure out Holy Spirit-inspired organizational wisdom in Orlando in the 21st century. There's no roadmap for every single church in every single context. So we need wisdom. So we have an organizational plan. You can see it on, your web, on the website. You've heard about it. We have clear goals. We have measurable tactics. You will see a year in report and what we've done. I think it's a very good organizational plan, but all of us acknowledge that it's worthless if it is not bathed in prayer and blessed by the Spirit of God but we know that we have a burden to be able to steward our resources well. So we're gonna do the best that we can to discern what the will of the Lord is and to ask him to bless these baby steps that we're putting before the church. Here's what I don't want. Here's what none of us want. I have a friend who is the executive pastor at a very large church and one of the members and a close friend of his gave $7 million dollars to the local college down the street. And so the executive pastor had lunch with this member. And again, they were friends. They had the relationship to have this kind of conversation. And he said, why did you give to the college and, and not the church? I mean, did you even consider giving to the church? And without missing a beat, the guy said, no, you would have no idea what to do with my money. And what he was hearing is that there was not organizational stewardship of the resources. There was no plan. So our hope is that, that we would be very transparent in what we're doing, very transparent in where the money goes and very transparent with our one, three and five year goals about what we would do with more money. We wanna be good stewards of this organization so that the organism can flourish. And then thirdly, we wanna steward our pastoral resource as well. So last week we had our monthly lunch with Jim which increasingly I hate that name, but it is, it's what it is. It's, it's lunch with me. I'm trying to be as accessible as I can. And, and I always really enjoy them. And we had, I don't know, maybe about nine-ish people at the, the last lunch. And it was really interesting sampling of, uh, of 
just people who have been in OGC for different periods of time. We had a few who joined in the 90s, a few in the early 2000s. Uh, We had a few of us who have been here about a year and we had somebody who's brand new. And we, there's no plan in these lunches, but we found ourselves talking about what is the ideal church size? What is the ideal church size? And as you would imagine, we had, a, we had a variety of opinions. Some people felt like smaller is ideal because we, you can know each other and really develop relationships easily. Some people felt like where we are now is the ideal size, this balance of, of knowing and meeting and greeting. And then some people felt like larger. Larger is the ideal size because you can have more influence. And I don't think there's any morality to any church size, but what was interesting and I really appreciated is that there was one consistent value regardless of your ideal church size is that all these people, they wanted to be seen, these are my words, not them, but they wanted to be more than a bottom in a seat. They wanted to be known and cared for and equipped. And whatever size church we find ourselves in, this cannot happen if we're not stewarding our pastoral resources well. So practically, what does that mean here? It means that we need more elders because we have more people. That's simple. We're in that process now. Uh, It means that we as elders need to become more proactive in identifying future elders and lifting up, building up, equipping, training, discipling these future elders. But it's not limited to elders because there are so many other areas where you are ministry leaders, where we need ministry leaders. And so our task is to be able to know our people and equip our people to see these gifts, to see these talents so that you can flourish in exercising and using and stewarding them. One thing I'm praying for right now that we don't have the money for, but I can pray, is for somebody to come on staff and help give leadership and training to the evangelism and discipleship efforts of this church. So we need to be thinking through what it looks like to steward our pastoral resource as well. And this is absolutely a responsibility of the elders, but it's also a responsibility of everybody else here. Everyone should be praying. Everyone should be praying for the leaders, for praying for people to be raised up, for praying for people to be sent out, praying that you would be those leaders, I hope, working to that end. Because I love if you go back to John chapter six, you see that Jesus has this responsibility to steward those who are given to him. And he does. He redeems us, he keeps us, he equips us, he calls us. And so now our privilege is that we get to steward those resources for him who stewarded us so well. And so in just a minute, we're going to transition and we get to take communion together. And I think this would be a great opportunity to pause and to think about how it is that we are gifted. What talents have we been given a time? Maybe to confess that we have not been stewarding stewarding our resources well but to think about how Jesus has stewarded us and let that out of joy and grace, not guilt, cause us to want to steward what we have in a more significant degree because we get to be a part of his kingdom coming to this world. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this word. We are so thankful for your son, your spirit, your gospel.
And we ask today that you would do a work in our hearts that, that these wouldn't just be words and songs and prayers, but they would be stirring an affection towards you, an affection that would make us like the first servant, like the second servant. And we pray that none of us, by your grace, would be the third servant. But only you know where we are. Only we know where we are. And so we enter in this time of reflection and communion and we ask that you would really discern, help us to discern where we are and how we can enjoy this life more by stewarding more wisely what you have given us. We pray that you would take these elements, this simple, ordinary bread and juice and that you would use it in a supernatural way that you would set it apart, that we might be called closer to you, that we might be conformed more in the image of your son, and that we might be sent out more effectively. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.